What comes to mind when you hear the word king? What images are conjured up in your imagination when you hear the word king? If you are musically minded, you might think of Elvis Presley, the king of rock. Or if you like hip-hop, you might remember Kanye West's album, Jesus is King. If you're literary-minded, you might think of King Arthur, Excalibur, and the Knights of the Round Table. You might even think of Aslan, King of Narnia, or Stephen King, the author of Scary Stories. And if you're truly spiritual, you will think of the King James Bible. If you're sports-minded, you might think of boxing promoter Don King or Cavalier Heat Lakers NBA star LeBron James. If you're politically-minded, you might think of MLK and the Civil Rights Movement or the American Revolution and the Kings of England both then and now. And I don't even have time to mention King Friday, B.B. King and Lucille, the Lion King or Rodney King. Can't we all just get along? (laughs) Seriously, though, from his lips to God's ears, can't we all just get along? You get the idea. The point is that in our time, king means different things to different people. It no longer carries the weight of sovereignty, majesty, and authority that it once did. We live in a democratic republic. We have a government that is from the people, by the people, and for the people. It's not quite mob rule, not yet, but it is majority rule, meaning it comes from the bottom up, not from top down. We are ruled from down below, not from up above. We've been spoiled, if not ruined, by liberal democracy. As a result, we hold a watered-down, if, totally, if not totally weightless, view of monarchy. In America, the attitude towards monarchy is Deeply Boromir-esque, America has no king, America needs no king. So here, everyone is free to say and do whatever seems right in their own eyes, to choose their own truth, even to craft their own reality. In some ways, it reminds us of the time of the judges when there was no king in Israel except the Lord, but he didn't really count. To the degree that American Christians believe Jesus is king and not the president of the United States, and to the degree that American Christians believe that the only rule of faith in life is the Holy Scriptures and not the U.S. Constitution, well, many still live, move, and exist as if Jesus, the king of the world, is king in the way that Charles III is king of England. As Tennyson said, he reigns but he does not rule. His reign is more symbolic than substantive, ceremonially beautiful, yet not legally binding. Style over substance, celebrity without authority. Likewise, for many American Christians, King Jesus is emotionally nostalgic, but practically unnecessary. His scabbard has no sword. His mouth is muzzled. His crown is cardboard. It's all cosplay, isn't it? This low view of monarchy in our culture and in our churches clashes with the high view of monarchy revealed in the scriptures. But whatever our view is, it doesn't change or alter the truth and reality 
of the situation one bit. Jesus is the king. This is the truth. This is reality. Jesus is the king. He is the king we need, even if he is not the king we deserve or the king we want or the king we expect. Jesus is the once and future king who now reigns and rules heaven and earth. Now the question we ask is, how did Jesus become king and why does it matter that he is king? Well, to answer that question, we need to go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he planted the seeds of monarchy in the Garden of Eden. When God formed man from the dust of the ground, in his image and in his likeness, he crowned that man with glory and honor. The first man was a king, ordained to take dominion and rule over all the creatures the Lord God had made on the earth. But that man failed in disobedience and the kingdom was torn from his hand and promised to a better man, a king that would come, who would do God's will, a king after God's own heart who would crush the serpent's head. The seeds of the monarchy that were planted began to take root among God's people and to grow. Jacob blessed one of his sons and said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. This story is told over and over around fires and tables and altars. When the true king comes, he is going to rule over all the peoples of every nation. The law, the Psalms, and the prophets bear this out as they speak about the coming of the king. The law said that when when the king God chooses sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping the words of this law and by doing them." Why? So that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom. In other words, the king was expected to live by every word that came from the mouth of God and to lead his people to do the same. Later on, the Lord God appointed David, a man after his own heart, to become king. And the Lord gave him victory and success over his enemies. But when David was reaching the end of his life, God came to him and promised to build him a house, a dynasty, a line of kings that would endure until the king of kings should come. And God promised, I will raise up your seed after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This promise was as ancient as it was future. But that's the law speaking. The Psalms come along and tell us the same thing, that when the king comes, the promise is going to be kept and fulfilled. 
The king shall cry out to God, You are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. And the father will answer him, I will make you the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for you forever. My covenant will stand firm for you. I will establish your offspring forever and your throne as the days of heaven. And other psalms also sing and shout that the promised king is an eternal, glorious, divine savior who is coming to bring aid and rescue to his people. But as time passed, one king after another failed and faltered and fell away, and the promises of God seemed to fall short and to fail themselves. As is often the case, as time lapses, hope fades into the world of night, through shadows falling out of memory and time. But in the midst of darkness, God sends messengers of light to remind his people not to sleep, not to shrink back in fear, because despite all appearances to the contrary, God's promises to raise up a king and to establish his throne have not failed, cannot fade, and will not fall. And so the prophets come as messengers of light, speaking to people walking in darkness. Behold the light. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he shall reign forever and ever. The zeal of the Lord will do this. And the prophets kept preaching to the people suffering in the darkness of night. The prophets saying to the people, The Lord God saw that there was no justice and it displeased him. And he saw that there was no man and it marveled him that there was no one to intercede. And so he acted himself. His own arm brought salvation and his righteousness upheld it. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. He put on a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and from his glory, the rising of the sun. Comfort, comfort, O my people. Your king and your savior draws near. And when he comes, he will put the world to right. He will bring justice to the mistreated. He will defend the accused. He will intercede for the outcast. The king shall come in the flesh and dwell among us, and he will wage war on the world, the flesh, and the devil. And he will go into all the world to conquer his foes and to comfort his friends. This is how the law, the Psalms, and the prophets prepared the way for the king to come. This is how the law, the Psalms, and the prophets shaped the imagination and prepared the hearts of God's people to welcome their king when he should come. So in light of all of these visions, it's not hard to see how the Jewish people imagined the king in more political and militaristic terms than spiritual and moral ones. Don't give them such a hard time. Their imagination was shaped by the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. But like us, 
They focused on the parts they liked about the power and the glory of the king. But they forgot about the parts they didn't like, about the weakness and the suffering of the king. So in their defense, you're dealing with a people who were oppressed and persecuted for so much of their history. They were even exiles in their own country. They had endured more than enough of contempt, and they wanted vengeance And they wanted victory over their enemies, even if it meant violence. And by the time we come to the story of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, the people of God had cultivated a vision of the promised king as a glorious, majestic, powerful, victorious warrior. In their imagination, he was going to do far more than crush the head of a little snake. He was going to vanquish their political enemies with military force. When Jesus came into the world full of grace and truth, his incarnation of the king clashed and collided with their imagination of the king. And ultimately, this conflict will result in his arrest and end with his death. However, Between his birth and his death, there was a time when all of the polling data indicated that most ordinary Judeans and not a few Samaritans believed that Jesus was the promised king that God raised up, and they were ecstatic about the possibilities. A journey through the Gospel of John will back all of this up. When Jesus met Philip's friend Nathanael, Nathanael confessed, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And he said this not only on the strength of Philip's testimony about Jesus, but also on the strength of his own personal encounter with Jesus. Jesus, the king, did not deny Nathanael's declaration of faith. He delighted in it. He declared to Nathanael that there is far more to life than meets the eye. Life is more than material. It's more than physical. Life is spiritual. It is supernatural. And so Jesus says, Nathaniel, gift of God, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You will experience the true reality of the kingdom of God. When Jesus met Nicodemus, he told him the truth about the metaphysical and supernatural character of the kingdom of God. And as the king, Jesus has authority to establish not only who gets to come into his kingdom, but how they must come into his kingdom. And so Jesus points out that no one can enter his kingdom by flesh and blood, and no one can experience it by natural and rational means, but only by water and spirit, only by the power and grace of God. Why? Because Jesus' kingdom is not from this world. It is from above, not from below. It is for the world, but it is not from the world. When Jesus met the Samaritan woman, they had one of the most profound spiritual and theological conversations ever recorded in the Bible. They talked about racial tension. They talked about cultural taboos, marital struggles, and liturgical controversies. And at one point, the woman perceives that Jesus is a prophet, but then she imagines that he might even be more than a prophet. And so she says to him, I know that when the king comes, he will tell us all things. 
And Jesus responds, I will tell you one thing now. He has come. He is here. And he is speaking with you. And with this gospel echoing in her ears and soaking into her heart, she runs home to tell her family and community about Jesus, the King, the Savior of the world. When Jesus led the crowds in the wilderness and healed the sick and fed the hungry, the people rightly recognized that there is something extra special about Jesus. And so they decided to come and take him by force and make him their king. They were right to see Jesus as the promised king, but they were wrong to politicize and militarize Jesus for the sake of their own nationalistic purposes. Were they to ask him, Jesus, whose side are you on, Israel or Rome, America or China, Democrat or Republican? He would surely answer, neither But I am the commander of the armies of the Lord, and now I have come. And the question is, are you on my side? Are you on my side? They learn the hard way what many American evangelicals are struggling to learn in our day, that Jesus is the mascot of no nation, of no party, of no denomination, of no person. He is the Messiah, the Christ the king. When Jesus promised to raise the dead, give living water to the thirsty, and open the eyes of the blind, the people wondered if he might truly be the king. But when Jesus called himself the good shepherd, he removed all doubt. He was openly declaring himself in that moment to be the king, and his critics knew it. And they knew it because the Old Testament scriptures, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets had all said that the promised king will be the shepherd of God's people. And Jesus comes as the king who would shepherd God's flock. He seeks the lost and gathers the stray. He heals the injured, feeds the hungry, waters the thirsty, strengthens the weak, comforts the abused, and rests the weary. And above all, Jesus comes as the king who will fight the enemies of his sheep to the death in order to save his little lambs from wolves and strangers and dragons. He comes to lay down his life and to take it up again for you. He comes to lay down his life and take it up again for you. By the time Jesus came up to the holy city, rumors of this new king had gone viral. When Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, crowds and critics immediately understood the symbolism that this Jesus is claiming to be the king promised by God through the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. The critics complained and the crowds cheered, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. It was just a few nights later, under cover of darkness, that a squad of soldiers, armed to the teeth, came to a garden to arrest Jesus. When he was confronted by the soldiers, he did not cower in fear. He did not cave under pressure. Jesus stepped forward and entered the ring. He confronted his opponents, front and center, with all the courage of a mighty king. His speech and his acts were so bold in that night that his enemies drew back in fear, even with weapons in their hands. And they fell to the ground in shock at the sight of his face and the sound of his voice. 
When Jesus was betrayed and abandoned and denied by his closest, dearest friends, he did not falter, he did not fall apart. When he was arrested and dragged from place to place to endure one mock trial after another, he was unfazed. When night ended and day dawned, the religious leaders and political rulers saw that Jesus stood fearless and faithless in their, faithful in their presence. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Rather, he kept entrusting himself to his Father. And when Jesus stood before Pilate, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He did not frantically beg for mercy. He did not plead for his life. He did not cry out in desperation. He looked Pilate dead in the eye and did not flinch. He simply confessed the faith and testified to the truth. My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone, everyone is who is of the truth listens to my voice. Are you listening? Are you listening? Jesus might not be the king you expect. He might not be the king you want. He might not be the king you deserve. But Jesus is the king you need. After all this time, after all these years, we see the seed of woman has finally come into the world to confront the serpent and to crush his head. Here we see King Jesus not running from danger, not skirting around the enemy, not hiding in the shadows, not ashamed of who he is, but standing toe-to-toe with the priests, eye-to-eye with Pilate, and face-to-face with the prince of darkness. His struggle is not against flesh and blood, but with the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, that ancient serpent. Here we see Jesus at the judgment seat on the stone pavement, but suddenly the king does the unthinkable, the unimaginable. He enters the valley of the shadow of death. He is not clothed in armor. He has put no bronze helmet on his head, no coat of mail on his body, no sword at his side, no shield in his hand. He enters the valley of the shadow of death, clothed only with the Spirit of God on his life and with the Word of God in his mouth. And in the silences between heaven and earth, he speaks to the serpent And says, you come to me with soldiers and swords and spears. You come to me with suffering and shame. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of the powers of heaven. The God of the armies of all those who wrestle with God. Whom you have defied and defiled. Mark my words. Today, on this very day, before the sun sets. You will be delivered into my hands. By the Lord, and I will strike you down and crush your head. And I will proclaim my victory to the living and the dead, so that all the earth may know that the King has come, and so that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves. The Lord saves, not with sword and spear, but with sticks and stone, with the cross of Christ. For the battle belongs to the Lord, and he will give you into my hand. 
Brothers and sisters, behold Jesus of Nazareth, the King and the Savior of the world, not suspended on a tree, but sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus is the King we need. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray. You are the King of glory, O Christ, the eternal Son of the Father. When you took upon yourself our flesh to set us free, you humbled yourself to be born of a virgin. When you overcame the sting of death, you opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. You are seated at God's right hand in the glory of the Father. We believe that you will come to be our judge. Come then, Lord, and help your people whom you redeemed at the price of your own precious blood and bring us with all your saints to glory everlasting. O Lord, save your people and lift them up forever. Keep us without sin now and always. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us. For all our trust is in you. Amen.